this paradigm shift that the instructions for fulfilling the Great Commission are to be found in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. They are the marching manifesto for Christians today. I suddenly realized, oh wow, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. Mm. And I've spent 20 years doing something that looks really different. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired. Great to be back with you for another fantastic uh, conversation. For those of you that are new to Inspired, it's all about getting in different mates and um, people I've come across over the years uh, who are doing all sorts of beautiful stuff, be it locally or overseas. And this week, it, it, I, I know it's going to be very thought-provoking and challenging. We've got with us uh, Phil Moore. Welcome, Phil. Hi there, Simon. It's great to be with you. Yeah, great to have you, buddy. Um, so Phil would be known to many of you for his uh, Straight to the Heart Bible Conscious series. So he's done the whole Bible through, what is it about? Is it about 30 books? How, how, how many have you done it in? Yeah, it's 26 books, the commentary series, and then a few little uh, flankers like the Bible in 100 pages and things like that. Fantastic. So he's got a big Bible brain. We first, uh, <laughs> our, our paths first crossed back in, we reckon, about 2003 in Woking. Uh, overlapped at uh, New Day, which is New Frontiers uh, Youth Conference uh, over the years as well. And I mean, a lot of Phil's work has been uh, pastoring and becoming a leader of a multi-site church in London, uh, again, as part of the New Frontiers Network. They had six or seven different boroughs. Uh, and then something happened uh, during COVID lockdown, which uh, has sparked some radical changes. So uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, you unpacking that for us, Phil. But let's just go back, shall we? Um, go and give us a bit of your back background. Were you raised uh, to, in a Christian context? Uh, yeah, I, I was. My dad was an Anglican vicar okay. uh, with, uh, you know, all the highs and lows of what it's like growing up in a vicarage. Mm -hmm. Although credit to my mum and dad, they brought me up so well, but I wouldn't actually say that I became a Christian until I left home looking back now. Mm -hmm. So I, I've got one brother, an older brother, and uh, we were both brought up in a Christian household, felt like we were Christians because we knew how to taught the language you know we had pretty good bible knowledge our parents have been really good at kind of reading bible stories to us encouraging us to read the bible for ourselves so i think if you'd met me you'd have thought wow this this guy's a really strong christian and then my brother got saved um right. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a little bit like um you know the sometimes you can you can have a counterfeit note in your hand yeah. and you don't realize it until you've got a real note next to it and for me, that was what happened with my brother. We were both, I would say, counterfeit Christians. We'd grown up in a church culture. We knew how to speak the language. He got saved and I got challenged because mm -hmm. next to him, it was obvious I didn't have a relationship with God like he did. And to be honest, I didn't react very well. I persecuted my brother mercilessly mm -hmm. because I just felt so exposed by this new real relationship with God that he'd found. So you gave him a really tough time. Big time. Uh <laughs> Which I think is an encouragement for me whenever people give me a hard time for being a believer. Because actually the hard time I gave him was not a sign that I wasn't interested in Christian things. Mm -hmm. I gave him a hard time because I was feeling incredible challenge from his life. Uh, I think that's encouraging when, when you know, maybe people listening to this will be being given a hard time by their family or by their friends or by their work colleagues. It's not always a bad sign. And I think what my brother did well was he just kept loving me. Mm -hmm. um, and even when I went to university and like first year of university living 
pretty godless life, pretty obvious that I wasn't really following Jesus with all my heart. And instead of saying, I told you so, he just kept loving me and basically came alongside me. And I think, looking back, uh, basically persuaded me to go into a Christian context by promising me an amazing holiday. Go on. So where was that? Uh, well, I'm giving my age away when I say um, the Iron Curtain had just fallen down around mm-hmm. this time. You know, communist countries had become open to the West for the first time. Yeah. So my brother said to me, hey, there's this group called Operation Mobilization. They're running an event called Love Europe, where you basically go and spend the summer in, for me, it was Hungary and the Czech Republic. Uh-huh. Basically, these countries, which until about a year earlier, I wasn't allowed to go to and uh, go and help the Christians that are living in those countries. And I thought, yeah, sounds good to me, you know, not just to travel to those places, but to actually live in households with Hungarians and Czech people. Bring it on. And so how did it go? Uh, Well, (laughs) it led to conversion, but not quite in the way that I expected, Simon. Mm -hmm. Um, The OM leaders were obviously quite smart. They probably knew that there'd be a few people like me who were there for the backpacking around Europe aspect of, yeah. of Love Europe rather than the gospel aspect. And what they did is they, they, they began the summer of outreach by doing four or five days of basically a missionary sending conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, one of those nights, they basically did a pretty hard-hitting gospel message. It was on the life of Samson. uh, And the message was basically, he was part of the people of God and he was complacent because he felt he was part of the family of God. He didn't take God seriously. He didn't take God's word seriously. He didn't take holiness seriously, uh, but just kind of lived his own life and thought, it's okay, I'm part of the family of God. And the message was basically, God's judgment fell on him. Look at what happened to him. He brought destruction on his life through his disobedience. And, you know, it may sound an old-fashioned way of putting it, but the fear of God fell on me. Yeah. Um, you know, I just experienced incredible conviction of sin, and I realized I am Samson, and Samson's life story is going to become my life story unless I start taking God seriously. And having heard the gospel, you know, growing up in a Christian household, I must have heard the gospel a thousand times. Mm. It's not that people didn't express it well. And again, this is an encouragement, I think, for gospel preachers. Having heard the gospel a thousand times, it was like I heard the gospel for the first time. Yeah. And I was just undone. And my life completely changed from that moment on. Right. So totally defining moment. uh, Absolutely. So what did it look like the rest of the the few weeks? Well, I think at at the heart of my conversion really was uh, the end of a struggle I'd had with God. I'd basically said to God, I believe you're out there and everything but don't spoil my fun. Mm-hmm. If there's an area where you and I disagree, <laughs> let's be clear who's going to win here. Yeah. Uh, and I think at the essence of my conversion was radical obedience. I basically said to God, when I read the Bible, there are things that I think are stupid. Turn mm-hmm. the other cheek, go the extra mile, rejoice in trouble. You know, they are ridiculous. They're not going to work in my life. Hmm. Uh, but I said to God, wherever your word and my ideas disagree, we're going to go with your word rather than my ideas. And hmm. that was just life changing. And so I then spent the whole summer living that way and discovering what it means to live that way to the extent that when I came back to the UK, there was no turning back for me. I kind of got used to wake up in the morning, 
go and share the gospel with people, have lunch, go and share the gospel with more people, have dinner, go and share the gospel with more people, go to bed, wake up in the morning, repeat. And I just lived this life of uh, total devotion to Jesus because that was what I was there to do the mission for. Brilliant. But, you know, those formative weeks after you give your life to Jesus, they well, they're formative weeks. And so after weeks of living that way, when I got back to the UK, I just assumed that's how Christians were meant to live. Mm. And, and and thus began the story of my life, Simon. I, I, I thought, okay, so the British church is not quite like that. I can either change to fit in with the British church or I can refuse to change and somehow demand that the British church fit in with me because I do think God took me out of the UK to teach me something to bring back to the UK. Mm. And I discovered, if you want to put it badly, I discovered I was a very stubborn person. Mm-hmm. But, um, if you look at it positively, you would say that I think God took me out of the UK to do a very deep work in my life mm-hmm. so that when I came back to the UK, I could impart something different around radical obedience uh, to God's call to holiness, to the Great Commission, to God's purpose in our generation. And I suppose that's been the story of my Christian life is is not accepting the status quo, but really trying to bring the status quo into line with what the New Testament describes following yeah. Jesus should look like. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd share a similar voice, I think, coming from the outside, having seen what's modelled in Burundi as authentic, costly discipleship and bringing those challenges back to the West as well. Um, so you graduated from university. What happened next? Yeah. Uh, so I, I spent a year working for UCCF in mm-hmm. Paris. Um, they're known as Les Crues Bibliques Universitaires, mm-hmm. the University Bible Groups. They've got really original title in, yeah. in France. So basically, I spent a year going to the universities of Paris uh, and the halls of residence, basically looking for Christians. If I couldn't find any making some Christians, you know, like finding the lost, sharing the gospel with them. Mm -hmm. And it was just an amazing experience where I knew at the end of the year I was going to come back to the UK. I had a job waiting for me in business. Um, And so university split into three terms. The first term was find some believers or make some believers and begin a, a, essentially a Christian group on campus. Term two, um, make the French students or some of the French students your assistant leaders leading with you. Yeah. Term three, make them the leaders and you assist them for a term. Mm. And then obviously month four, you're, you're back in England, they carry on. So in terms of understanding what leadership is, not building to yourself, but right from day one, building to the fact you're going to exit, it was super helpful. Mm. So being a, a missionary in another context, loved it. Brilliant. So six years then at Procter & Gamble, any sort of key lessons from that? Uh, Well, it's just good uh, learning in business. I always encourage people who are, you know, graduating from university and they're saying, I want to do full-time Christian work. Great. Uh, Well, I I feel like we've all got, what, 45 years or whatever to spend uh, in our working career. I, I think there's great wisdom in spending the first few years making sure that each year that you spend is worth a little bit more. Mm. So working for Procter & Gamble, I learned a lot of life lessons in terms of self-organisation, being a leader, being nice to people when we're under stress and pressure, mm. and the downsides when I got it wrong were generally that we, the company lost a bit of money um, rather than 
leading a church and a lot of people get hurt. So I found it really helpful. Um, and, you know, led some of my friends to know Jesus, started a Christian group on, on campus, started a global Procter & Gamble Christians prayer network. You know, there's lots of different ways you can make an influence in, in a secular workplace, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. And then you felt a clear call out of that, did you, to join the, the coin? That's when we first met, New Frontiers Family of <laughs> Churches. And... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I'd been uh, I'd been at the coin church in Woking uh, for a few years, moved there basically to get this job uh, with P&G. And they'd asked me to go on staff and I'd said no. They wanted me to head up their evangelism. I'd said no. And then I just really felt God speak to me. Actually, while I was on honeymoon, we're lying on the beach, I felt God really speak to me. And so my new wife and I, we laid down a couple of fleeces, mm -hmm. um, which I'm not sure is the best way to get guidance, but <laughs> sometimes God meets you in your weakness. So basically, the first fleece we laid down was we said, well, we've said no to this job before. If you want me to leave my business career and, and start pastoring. Um, may the lead pastor of the church come up to us on our first Sunday back after after honeymoon and say, hey, I want to offer you that job again, which he then did, right. um, which was inconvenient. And he said, you've got a month to think about it. <laughs> uh, and so we were heading for, we, we were driving back from my wife's parents um, uh, and it was heading back for the Sunday evening service. And I knew my friend Tony was preaching that evening and I knew that we needed a sign because I needed to give an answer. And we're just driving in the car and I would never recommend anyone does this, but <laughs> I, my wife and I, we prayed, we said, God, there's this verse that is really, uh, really important to us, has been a big part of our Christian life. Jo uh, Joshua 1 verse 8, do not be afraid, be bold and courageous. I'm with you. I'll give you every place where you where you put your feet. If Tony preaches from this verse tonight, then we'll know that you're in this. Wow. And I don't know how many verses there are in the Bible, something like 16,000 or something, isn't it? My friend Tony gets up to preach, and you'll never guess what he says. Right, I want you to turn to Joshua 1 verse 8. Love it. At which my wife and I kind of looked at each other and thought, wow, we're going to have to do this thing. <laughs> yeah. So that was it. So you, you, sign, you it. sign up. Yeah. And yeah. um, you're, so you're in charge of evangelism there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I spent, I think, six more years working in charge of evangelism. Again, just learning lessons of, you know, what does it mean to lead the people of God in reaching those who don't yet know God? Um, you know, lots of, lots of uh, good things, you know, excitement of seeing people get saved and, you know, some, some, wonderful, some, some wonderful examples of God at work. Uh, and lots of lessons where I think looking back, probably the church were very generous to me, gave me lots of space, and I probably benefited more than they did from the fact that they just let me loose to learn a few lessons. Uh, but, you know, six very, very happy years. And then because I was, well, because I'd been involved in wider New Frontiers leadership, I was traveling around different churches, preaching and helping different churches. Um, a church up in Wimbledon, mm -hmm. um, uh, lost its lead pastor and I knew the, the guys who led the church there and they were adamant that they wanted me to come and become their lead pastor and Ruth and I prayed about it and made the move that was uh, beginning of 2010. Right and you had 12 years there and they were they were great years weren't they? Yeah I think so um, you know it depends how you measure it really so in terms of the way I used to measure things I was definitely living the dream uh, I think 
I inherited a church of less than 250 people. By the time I handed it over, there were over a thousand. We were one service in one place when I started. I think we became 10 services in six or seven different places by the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw lots and lots of new people, went to new places, baptized a lot of people. Um, you know, not without its challenges. I uh, This isn't really the remit of the interview, but um, I, I just find multi-site church just provokes conflict because you're not you're not worshiping together in the same room. Mm-hmm. You've got lots of alpha leaders who are wanting to basically reach their communities, but you spend all your time trying to build friendships with one another almost artificially because you're not really living your lives together. Mm-hmm. So there were there were you know it wasn't without its challenges, but even when COVID hit. If you'd stopped me at the beginning of the COVID lockdown and you'd said, Phil, how's it going? I would have said to you, well, 12 great years, 25 more years, yeah, more of the same. I, I really felt I was living the dream, to be honest. So what was it? Was it, was it Damascus Road paradigm shift conversion experience? <laughs> How do you describe it? Um, uh, it was more of a steady thing. You know, it was over a year, wasn't it, that we spent lockdown in one way or another and certainly not able to meet back as, as normal for churches. So for me, lockdown was a chance to take a step back and to reflect on how things were going and even just to spend time with the Lord. And actually there were a few severe challenges that I think I faced when I started asking those questions. I I started asking the question, were we actually making disciples as a church? It's one thing to get bigger and bigger and bigger, Mm -hmm. but are we making disciples? And there were probably two different groups of people in the church that that caused me a lot of uh, of angst at that time. There, there were the people that I thought were devout believers who fell away, or, or at the very least didn't particularly follow Jesus for a year and didn't particularly seem to miss following Jesus in the way we had been. And I was like, that feels huge to me. Yeah. It's like it, in in ancient battles, they always used to begin with a volley of arrows mm-hmm. that would fire into the massed ranks. And often people would get killed, uh, but because they were standing next to other soldiers, they would stay standing for the whole battle. They were kind of held standing and no one knew they were dead because they were surrounded by other people. Mm-hmm. And it was only at the end of the battle you realise, oh, this guy next to me has been dead for the last six hours, but he was held up by me and the other people around him. Mm. It actually felt like a number of the people that we were pastoring were like that. They were not born again. They were not spiritually alive, but they were just held up by the people around them. And that distressed me. It made me think, okay, what are we building here? Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about Jesus coming back and discovering whether you're building with gold, silver, wood, hay, or straw. And I felt almost like Judgment Day had arrived early. And I didn't like what I saw. Mm. And then there were were another group, the opposite extreme, that caused me just as much angst. There were lots of lovely, devoted Christians who were saying, oh, I walk with Jesus is better than it's ever been. Now that we don't have to go to all these different church meetings and we can stay at home and read the Bible and worship and we've got so much more time to witness to our friends. Wow, this is amazing. We're really growing in God. And to be honest, they caused me as much angst because I was thinking, hey, I'm I'm wearing myself out here. Like me and my team, we are so busy putting on these Christian events. Mm. And the reality is you guys are growing more in Jesus without what we're doing than, than you were with what we were doing. And mm. I think that was a bit of a crisis for me. I think um, 
Another crisis was just, we were all on Zoom, weren't we, during COVID yeah. lockdown. So I just started hanging out with these disciple makers uh, in Asia who were leading disciple making movements and uh, were truly making disciples. And I think by the time the COVID lockdown ended, I was I was in a crisis of looking what, at what we were building and thinking, I don't think this is what we should be building. This is not what Jesus has called us to build. And then seeing some people in other parts of the world who I felt were being more faithful to scripture, uh, these disciple making movements. And, and, and I felt, actually, we've got to learn from these guys. And so when the government said, uh, I think it was July 2021, wasn't it? The government said, you are able to meet again from September. Everyone else was celebrating. And I, I think I was still in this crisis of thinking, I don't think we should go back to what we were before. Yeah. You know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to, uh, I, was, I was preaching a you know, quite a long time ago now, 15 years ago, maybe in, a, in America, in a mega church. And, um, and I, I'd showed up and it was going to be six talks during the week. And I ended up speaking 22 times. It was just, there was an incredible outpouring of the spirit and, and the whole church bought into it. Mm. And the leaders were, the elders were meeting to discuss what was going on. And then I met with the lead pastor and, and basically it was highlighting, and this wasn't, I think I was just part of the process, but it was highlighting that the whole, the whole infrastructure, the whole paradigm was flawed yeah. and it was going to be so costly to, yeah. to, to deconstruct and reconstruct healthily. <laughs> and I, 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 I left and I listened to the sermon the next week with bated breath, really. It's like, <laughs> is he going to choose the safe path of, 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 the, of the, the safe, safe path of the status quo, or is he going to engage with where the spirit's leading? And, and, and sadly in that case, within a few sentences, I re I realized oh. it was the safe path, but so oh. that I, I just see such integrity in what you've, what you've done, but what was, so what was the next step? Well, I shared with a couple of the senior leaders on, on my church team, and I just said to them, I feel like COVID has been like taking our church into the garage. Mm -hmm. It's been put on a ramp. We've had a chance to look underneath the chassis. And actually, we've seen some things that aren't good. We probably need to fix them before we get back on the road. And in reality, if we don't fix them at this moment, we're never going to be able to fix them, was, was my argument. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of felt, you know, Sunday comes every week <laughs> and so much of church life certainly in the west is getting ready for sunday mm. so it's almost like every single week we were getting ready for the fact that we had multiple services happening on sunday and what you've got to understand here simon is i, I don't blame those leaders at all mm. i don't feel any resentment towards them whatsoever i don't think i express myself very well because at that stage i didn't i still didn't quite know what god was calling us to do yeah. i just said god's given us a blank sheet of paper uh, we don't have to drive off the ramp the same way. Uh, and I think if we drive off the ramp the same way, we will never become what I think God's told us to become during lockdown. And I think I probably didn't express myself brilliantly. And I think there was also wisdom in some of what my senior leaders said, just a couple of the senior leaders. And one of them said to me, people, people don't want change, Phil. They've had 18 months of of COVID lockdown, everybody wants to go back to the way it was. Um, it's wonderful you've had your epiphany during lockdown, mm. um, but the rest of the church haven't. 
Uh, and besides, our staffing structure and the buildings we own and all of our vision statements and, you know, all of the complexity of a modern church, particularly a multi-site church, is all geared in one direction. People are not looking to come back after COVID to hear that we're going to change. Mm. Um, and so if, effectively, it, it said to me, uh, we want you to carry on leading, um, uh, but it's on the condition that you you don't change anything for two years. Oh dear! So a bit, <laughs> bit, bit of an impasse there. What, what do you do? Yeah, well, I felt a bit depressed. If I'm honest, mm. uh, this was just before the weekend started. So I took the weekend to. Uh, I'd love to say pray all weekend. I think I felt depressed for a bit of the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we'd already had some conflict in the church just due to the fact we were multi-site. And so everyone had slightly different visions. And it's like, do you do you try and control the different sites to have the same vision? Uh, but that is a bit controlling. Or do you let everybody do their own thing? But then you're not really one church anymore. You might as well disband. Um, and so we'd been going through that question for three or four years. And I could just see this was going to cause massive conflict in the sense that some of the leaders didn't see what I saw. And I had to assume most of the people in the church wouldn't see what I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think integrity was quite a big deal to me at that time. I felt Good, I, yeah. people, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I, I kind of felt people have joined this church on the understanding that I'm going to lead them in a particular direction. I don't know, even as the lead pastor, how much right I've got to completely change the goalposts and mm-hmm. to complain to complain that they're not okay with that. Um, but at the other, on the other extreme, I just thought, I'm the lead preacher. I'm the person who runs the membership courses. I'm the person who basically has to step up and say, join this church. This is God's great plan for your life. And I didn't feel I could say that. Um, I, it certainly wasn't what I felt God was calling me to do. Mm. And so I was, I think, basically having a bit of a crisis of I can't with integrity not change anything. But if I do change a lot of things, I think it's going to create a lot of conflict. And so I prayed over the weekend, chatted with my wife, and we basically came to the conclusion that it was a bit like Abraham and Lot, that they have this big argument together in Genesis 13. And actually the godly response that Abraham makes is he says to Lot, well, I tell you what, you have the land where we are. And I'll go to another part of the promised land and I'll trust that God's got fertile fields for me. Mm. And so literally, um, I basically went for my first meeting of the day and handed in my notice. Wow, bombshell. So you got <laughs> wife, four children, mortgage, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, those are the things, aren't they? I'm really glad I'd watched The Chosen. I don't know if you've watched uh, that series, Simon. Yeah. I, I, I'm a bit of a fan. I'm mm-hmm. a bit of a super fan, to be honest. Uh-huh. Um and I'd, I'd just been watching, like, there's, there's two episodes back to back. One is the one where Matthew is there at his table with money piled high. And Jesus says, come follow me. And he leaves everything to follow Jesus. And, mm. and the Roman guard who's guarding the tax booth says to him, you, you have everything. You've got money. You've got position. Do you know what you're doing? And Matthew just looks at him and smiles and says, Yes. <laughs> mm. um, and then in the next episode, Nicodemus basically is, he's a church leader, isn't he? He's, mm. he's well established as the leader of a Jewish megachurch. Um, and he's got so much to lose by following Jesus. And at the end of that episode, he makes the decision, I, I can't give it all up. 
Yeah. Uh, and th that was essentially the decision we were making. The church owned part of our house, so we might be made homeless. If we were homeless, we couldn't afford to live in the area, which meant my children would have to change school. Uh, you know, there's the whole thing of what do you do when you're in your mid-40s and, you know, you've been in church leadership for 20 years. Like, going into church leadership from business is easy. Going into business from church leadership is hard. It's mm. one-way traffic. So you've got all these things going around, and basically there's something about the way we pay our pastors and even run our churches that basically encourages our pastors to play it safe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I just got to the point where I just couldn't jump back into what I was doing and risk that I would reach 67 and retire and look around and think, what was I doing? Or worse still, Jesus would come back and he'd say, you know that lockdown year where I really spoke to you, what did you do with that? And I I didn't feel I could say to him, well, I was scared, so I buried what you said to me in the ground. I just thought, the, <laughs> however risky it felt to follow Jesus, I felt I felt there was a bigger risk in not doing so. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I, I feel a bit scared in in releasing this podcast that, <laughs> that uh, genuinely... What mass resignations. <laughs> well, genuinely, there'll be people that they know the Spirit of God is speaking to them and, and it will lead to carnage but but as as you've experienced my god will meet all not all your wants all your needs according to his glorious riches in christ well, philippians 4 verse 90. Right. so go on share a bit on that well i just if anyone is listening to the podcast and they think do you know what god's been speaking to me and i need to make a big change uh, they can get in touch with me i'm very happy to chat with anyone and mm. i can bolster their faith even now just um it felt like like me and my kids, we, we like to go on holiday to France and we like to jump off really high rocks into mm. the river. And you look down and it always looks much further when you're standing on the rock. It's never quite as high as you think it is. But like the thrill of jumping off into the fast flowing river, it felt like that, except that I really felt God was holding my wife and my hands mm. and we were going to be okay. And that's exactly what we were. So, you know, just miracles that follow. So... Um, you know, some of it is financial because you're you're giving up a well-paid job and so on. Um, the church owned a chunk of our house. And the biggest fear for us was, God, are we going to have to sell our house and move and lose the kids' schools and all our friends? And so we, we basically took out as big a mortgage as we could, bearing in mind I didn't have a salary anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and we then got the house valuer to come. And we basically said, God, this is all the money we've got. Um, if he values the house any more than this, we're going to have to sell. And I didn't really realize at the time what a big miracle it was because the house valuation was exactly the amount of money we had. Beautiful. So we were able to stay in the same house. But then our next door neighbor had his house valued a few months later, and it was about 50% more than the valuer had said for our house. Oh, yeah. so, so either he looks after his house a lot better than we do or... God was very gracious to us. Mm. And a number of kind of short-term jobs came up. Um, they were well-paid kind of mini contracts. I kind of totaled up at the end of that first year of not pastoring. Like, has God been faithful? Mm -hmm. And we discovered almost to the penny, God had provided as much income for me through my irregular work as he had through me if I'd stayed working for the church. So yeah. I, I just encourage anyone, if if you feel God's calling you to make a big and bold decision, if he's in it, 
he's big enough to provide for you in it. Uh, whatever you do, don't don't let money of all things be the thing that stops you from radically following Jesus. Mm, brilliant. Hi, folks. Greetings from Bujumbura, Burundi. You might hear the tooting of horns, the bustle of traffic out there. I'm looking out across the capital right now, and it's been so encouraging to see the way God is at work here amongst the poorest of the poor. And if you'd like to support us, you know, you could through prayer. We'd be really grateful. We believe that is the absolute bedrock of our work. So if you want to, that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash pray. Or if you could spare a few quid or a few bucks, then, you know, financial support obviously makes a massive difference in the poorest nation on earth. So if that's the case, greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. I'll put those links in the show notes. That's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Thank you so much. In the meantime, let's get back to the podcast. Wow. So that first year, how did you spend that? Um, well, I finished the Straight to the Heart series of commentaries. Uh, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time, even while writing, just reading books on disciple-making movements mm-hmm. and beginning to th- almost like unlearn uh, the Western way of doing church and relearn what I felt was a more biblical way of doing church. And literally the week after I finished the Straight to the Heart series, a friend of mine introduced me to one of the leaders of the underground church in in Iran. Mm-hmm. You probably know, Simon, there's a massive yeah, revival yeah. taking place in Iran right now. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the Iranian underground church leaders spoke good English and was quite tech savvy and had found a way to communicate with people outside the country using an app where he couldn't be detected by the Iranian government. And so we just met as a one-off, just, oh, it'd be nice to hear your story. And he was amazing. He basically said, "I, you know, we're seeing this massive revival in, in Iran. It's already spread over to Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and other countries of the Middle East. We're seeing disciple-making movements take root in places where you wouldn't think the church could flourish at all. And God's been talking to us, he said, about his desire to do this in the West, in the UK and in Europe that even as the church in the in in the West declines massively, that God's wanting to raise up disciple-making movements which which begin to re-evangelize the UK and Europe. And he said, I, I feel like this connection is something God's made. I'd love to mentor you every mm, week. So for a, <laughs> I know. So for a year, I spent an hour and a half online on a video call with this underground church leader in Iran who basically said, okay, yeah, every week he was so faithful. And, you know, lots of messages to and fro uh, during the week in between, basically just saying, I want to help you to unlearn the way you've learned to do church. Mm -hmm. And I want you to relearn some of what God's been teaching us. I want to help you to make some paradigm shifts in how you understand the scriptures and what Jesus is calling us to do. And it, it, to be honest, felt like I went back to school. Yeah. So it's a wonderful journey. And this is you with sort of uh, having written a commentary on every book in the Bible. You got two, yeah. de- two decades of leadership on your belt, <laughs> and you're you're basically becoming a student again. Yeah, yeah. I, I th- obviously it's it's humbling to be like a big church pastor with you know lots of social media stuff and preaching to hundreds, you know, over a thousand people every week. Get it gets to your ego. Um, there's something about stepping out of that that brings a bit of humbling. And 
I really felt like God wanted me just to be humble and go back to school. Mm. So reading the Bible through different fresh eyes, also under the tutelage of uh, someone else, it just helps you see things in a new, new way, doesn't it? Give us some examples of what that has meant to you. Yeah, I think, you know, as you say, I had written commentaries on every book of the Bible. But yeah, it does require a little bit of humility to be willing to say, actually, with all my learning, I still don't know the answers. Um, but, you know, I, I want to. What the leader did was he basically asked me questions. I mean, he did teach me things as well. But actually, at the heart of his teaching style was... Let me get you to open up key scriptures and let me ask you questions and let me trust the Holy Spirit to give you some answers. So I think if it had been, you know, I picked up a paperback and I read it, I wouldn't have been very convinced because I'd read a lot of paperbacks in my time. And I think even if he'd told me all the answers, I wouldn't have believed him because, you know, we're all smart enough not to listen to charismatic leaders all the time. Um but it was genuine. He took me to the scriptures and said, well, what do you think this means? And so, you know, like one question, when did the church begin? Well, I knew the answer to that. It began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell on the 120. But actually through the questions he asked me, I began to realize, no, actually the church began uh, on the day that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus when he was baptized at the River Jordan. And therefore, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not like the warm-up act before acts the main event you know it's like if you're looking at how do you fulfill the great commission you don't look at the book of acts and isn't it great that matthew mark luke and john mean that there were 120 people there to get involved actually jesus began planting the church through his original 12 disciples and when he then says go and make disciples of all nations the inference is well you make disciples the way Jesus made disciples. In other words, yeah. the keys to the Great Commission are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not just in the book of Acts. That was a paradigm shift for me. A second paradigm shift for me would be just the question of how do you go about the Great Commission? And the question that the Iranian leader asked me was, if the Great Commission is so important to Jesus, do you really think he would have left it to us to work out how to go about it? <laughs> well, obviously the answer is no. And then you start looking to see, well, where does he give us instructions? It took me back to those two passages, which I'd I'd read and I'd, I knew there were nuggets in there, but I'd put them in a drawer, uh, like with, 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 with the words on it, I probably won't understand this, this side of heaven. So right. I knew they were in scripture, but I'd given up on understanding them. Because obviously there are three commissions in, in the gospels, not just one. We talk about the great commission, Mm -hmm. But actually, the way it works is Jesus goes about his own ministry. And then in Matthew 10, he sends the 12 out in pairs yeah. on mission. And he gives them 42 verses of instructions. And then in Luke chapter 10, just about six months later, Jesus then, it says he sent 72 others out. Mm -hmm. So 12 times 6 is 72. So obviously the, the six pairs of disciples are now given six pairs of disciples each. And instead of going to Galilee, which is the mission of the 12, they now go to the whole of Israel, which is the mission of the 72. Mm -hmm. And Jesus gives 24 verses of instruction this time, uh, which are almost identical to the instructions that he gave to the 12. And then you get the third commission, the Great Commission, which is not to Galilee or Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And Jesus just says, tell, you know, make disciples, 
teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, which has to include Matthew 10 and Luke 10. So this paradigm shift that the instructions for fulfilling the Great Commission are to be found in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. They're not just a historical record of what Jesus said to the 12 and the 72. They are the marching manifesto for Christians today. And then you start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John through those lenses and you realise, well, that's what Jesus does with the woman at the well in John 4. It's what he does with the the man with a legion of demons in Mark 5. It, it, it's what Jesus does throughout the Gospels. It's what Paul does with Lydia in Philippi. It's what Paul does with the few in Thessalonica, with the Corinthians who go and reach the cities of Dalmatia. Uh, they basically follow what Jesus said in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. And it was so different from what I'd been attempting to do yeah. that it wasn't a second conversion because it wasn't to do with salvation but it was almost a conversion for me as a Christian minister. I suddenly realized, oh, wow, this is what Jesus is calling us to do. Mm. And I've spent 20 years doing something that looks really different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what, what does it look like then in your day-to-day -day life now? Well, at the heart of Matthew 10 and Luke 10 is Jesus' instruction to go and look for the person of peace. He says, uh, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few, therefore go out into the harvest and look for more workers, pray for more workers, and then go and look for more workers in the harvest field. That is people who are hungry and open, but who don't yet know Jesus. But when you reach them, they will reach their entire network, their community. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the way that the Samaritan woman reached the whole of the city of Sychar, the way that the Gadarene demoniac goes and reaches the whole of the Decapolis, you know, you, Lydia begins to reach the whole of Philippi. You see this again and again in, in the Gospels and in Acts. This idea that it's not about what I can do myself, but it's about finding people in the harvest in whose lives God is already working, who are hungry, who are asking questions, a bit like Cornelius in Acts 10. He's not a believer, but he's a God-fearer. He sometimes prays. He just doesn't know what to do until Peter comes and talks to him to find those people and to take them on a journey of discovery. So they not only come to faith, but start leading their whole network of friends to faith and I guess themselves go looking for more people of peace mm. who can lead their network of friends to know Jesus. And so that's what I've been doing. I I, I think my, my just life another is, one. Yeah. yeah, sorry, just interrupting you on the person of peace because it's really resonating with me. Just last night we had a community meeting uh, sort of full of anger because um Oh, how can I say this briefly? Basically, the, the, there's been a murder um, on the estate and uh, these houses were for prisoners coming out of prison and, and people are really mm -hmm. angry because there's a lot of kids around. And, and it was called by you know, certain key players. And, you know, they are the, the, the people of peace, aren't they? In terms of strategic yeah. people to, yeah. to try to come alongside. And if they get it, then they're going to be the, the, the doorkeepers to the community in terms of coming to Jesus, aren't they? That's right. So if I want to just give a contrast between what I used to do and what I do now is I would try and find someone who might be interested in coming to church with me. And my goal was connect them into this church community. Inevitably, within six to 12 months of becoming a Christian, they're, they're going to lose most of their non-Christian friends because they're going to be wrapped up in this great new church community that I'm trying to create for them. Mm. Um, and it was almost like when someone got saved, it was one for Jesus. 
and 20 for the devil uh, because the all all their non-christian friends well they were they hated jesus even more hmm. uh, because they'd lost their friend and he'd got a bit holier than thou and uh, and was no longer connected with them and it, it was extraction ministry, as, mm. as we would call it. Um, and what I've learned is the benefit of insider ministry. Like, I, I'm not actually trying to persuade them to come to a church service. I'm trying to persuade them to study the scriptures and to obey everything Jesus says and to gather their friends who don't know Jesus either and to study the scriptures with them. And together, they will uh, obey the words of Jesus and will begin to form a house church of their own within their community. So it's not one to Jesus, 20 to the devil. Yeah. It's it's 21 for Jesus because... Mm. Uh, you know, you're you're seeing the person of peace saved, and that person stays in the community, and then reaches their community for Jesus. It's such a different way of thinking. Totally different. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you before. So you had, you, your life was like split up into three <laughs> three parts, wasn't it? Well, I, I was just trying to be as practical in my answer as possible. Uh, I, I try to live my life by Matthew ten and Luke ten, and both of those passages begin by Jesus saying, "Pray." to the Lord of the harvest, mm -hmm. that, he'll, that he'll send out workers, that he'll help you to find these people of peace within the harvest fields. So about a third of my life, uh, I'm spending praying. Uh, I, I never used to pray that much as a, as a normal church leader. I was mm -hmm. too busy. I had too many emails to reply to. Uh, I'm, I'm spending time praying. I'm praying with an intensity I never prayed with before, mm -hmm. because I realize if God doesn't do this, it ain't going to happen. Then uh, I probably spend the second third of my life going out looking for people of peace. It feels like when my kids were young, we got this little stuffed uh, baby sheep, like a little soft toy. And we used to play a game called Hunt the Lost Sheep, where they would go out of the room and I would hide the sheep somewhere and they'd come in and I'd say, hot, cold, and they would find it and there'd be mm -hmm. great rejoicing when they found it hidden in some obscure place. I feel like that's how I live my life. I play Hunt the Lost Sheep with God. By his Holy Spirit, he's saying to me, hot, cold, move on. No, not here. Go somewhere new. And then you meet someone and you think, wow, this person's really hungry. Mm. I feel like I'm getting warm here. And then the final third of my, my life is I'm, I'm doing discovery Bible studies with them, taking them on a journey from creation to Christ, not sharing all of the gospel with them in, in one sitting. Like I refer to that as one and done. You, you manage to share the whole gospel with them, uh, but you know, you've bombarded them so much they're never going to talk to you again. No, I want to take them on a journey of discovery. Mm. And they may, they may only discover 10% of the gospel the first time we look at a Bible passage together, but I leave them wanting more, which means the next time they might now understand 20% of the gospel and I take them on a journey. That's how I'm spending my life. And the, just the goal's different and mm. the fruit's different as well. Mm. Yeah, go on. So what, what, are you seeing much fruit? Uh, I think yes and no. I'm seeing fruit in the sense that I've got a few people who've really caught this vision and are doing it with me. Uh, it was brilliant uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I think last month, uh, someone that one of us had met and we'd done this with, we'd taken them on a journey, discovery Bible studies, slowly helping them to understand the gospel. Um, they got baptised in our back garden in a paddling pool. Lovely. And uh, they'd invited their community of non-Christian friends to come and witness this moment. And that was an amazing celebration. I'm less than a year in, but I would say uh, I feel like I'm just finally beginning to learn 
what I'm meant to be doing. And mm. with the small team of people I've got, we're, we're beginning to work out, okay, what, what does it really look like to look for a person of peace? And I think probably the biggest fruit we've seen this year has been in ourselves, even though we are beginning to see a bit of fruit amongst the harvest as well. I mean, we love stories. So go on, give us a story of one person finding their way to Jesus. Okay. Um, the one that springs to mind would be, um, uh, I, I'd go to a lot of places I wouldn't have gone to as a church pastor. You might you might find me in a betting shop or a gay bar or places where there are people who are not likely to go to church. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met this gay barman and, you know, we got on quite well. And, you know, he opened up a little bit about some of the struggles in his life. And I encouraged him to come on this journey with me, um, and we began doing some discovery Bible studies from creation to Christ, and we went slow. I I knew that he would be scared off if I went too quickly with him, so just several, like over the course of about 12, 13, 14 weeks, we just Mm. went from creation to Christ, and I did what the Iranian house church leader had done with me. I... I got him to read a passage of scripture and instead of telling him the answers, I just asked him questions. What do you think this is saying to you? What is it teaching you about what God's like? What's it teaching you about what you're like and what you think God wants you to be like? And I just affirmed what he was discovering. I I didn't talk to him about his gay lifestyle. At no point did I challenge him about sexual promiscuity of any kind. And then about week 13, week 14, we're sitting together He's now kind of understood enough of the gospel to make some kind of decision. And I just said to him, so, you know, how are you feeling? What do you think God's calling you to do? And out of the blue, without me giving him any teaching on this from scripture, just from what God had been saying to him, he said to me, I don't really know, but I've come to the conclusion that even if it means I need to be single for the rest of my life, I need to follow Jesus. Uh, It's just, that's why I'm out in the harvest looking for the lost sheep. That's why I'm looking for the person of peace Mm. because there are people like that gay barman who like they will never come to traditional church. They are cut off from the kingdom of God and and we will never reach them unless we rediscover the truth of Matthew 10 and Luke 10 as, as the marching manifesto for the great commission. We've got to follow what Jesus says. And if we're not seeing people saved like Jesus says we should, then we've got to wonder whether we're not doing the things that Jesus said we ought to do. Yeah. Wow. Hey, folks. About a decade ago, we launched 13 films on radical discipleship for the More Than Conquerors book. And we've now put that on Vimeo for free. So it'd be great to use in your youth group or life group or whatever. Go to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash MTC. That's for more than conquerors. God bless you all. Now let's get back to the podcast. Um, so running out of time. Um, fun, straight to the point. How are you funding yourself? <laughs> that, that's an incredibly English question, isn't it? Uh, because Christian leadership has become a bit of a career um, mm. in the UK, at least. Whereas in Matthew ten and Luke ten, Jesus says, "Go out without a money bag." And actually, almost like part of your spiritual weaponry is your vulnerability before God. Mm. So I think part of what I've literally had to do is to pray and ask God to provide for me. And as I did that, 
you know, I haven't time, unfortunately, today to share some of the miracles I've seen, but I really have seen incredible miracles of provision, which on days when you're looking for people of peace and you don't seem to find anyone is incredibly encouraging mm. when you feel like, okay, <laughs> I wouldn't still be doing this if God were not showing up in miraculous ways to, to fund me doing this. So yeah. I set up a tent-making business, which um, probably takes about 5% of my time and generates probably a third of the income I used to uh, receive as a church pastor. That is a miracle from God. Um, mm. I met some uh, I met some people in America who really caught the vision for what I'm doing, and they they said to me, "Hey, we'd we'd like to team with you in this. We'd like to give you a bursary uh, every month to support you to do this, so that you don't have to be distracted by trying to make ends meet." And they've been incredibly generous. And I I, I would say. My wife and I, we've done the sums. Has God provided an, as much for me as he did when I was in full-time employment? And we would say, yeah, pretty much he's he's provided exactly the same amount as he would have done. But more than that, I think we would both say God's given us something we never had before. Mm. We've got enough. That's what I'd say. Yeah. I, I never had enough before. I was quite materialistic. I love my spreadsheets. I like... I like amassing money, if I'm honest, Simon. Um, and I think learning something of what it really means to follow Jesus Christ. Christian ministry was never meant to be a ticket towards financial stability. Part of coming alive to the harvest is dying to career and riches and so on, so that others can come alive to the riches that are theirs in Christ. So I say that as someone who's able to give testimony that the Lord has provided beyond our wildest dreams. But I also just want to make it clear, if if he hadn't provided, we'd still want to do this. Because actually at the heart of following Jesus is he gave his lifeblood for us. I think we can give up our careers for him. And he's promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Mm. So we can set out without a money bag, trusting that he will look after us. And, you know, when I say this to some of my English friends, their eyes glaze over. It's like, oh, radical idealist. I don't think this is radical idealism. I just think this is what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. And if anyone's listening to this thinking, God's calling me to do this, I want to say to you, that is a promise that he will provide for you. And get in touch with me. Maybe I can encourage you some more. Yeah. Oh, mate. I mean, I find it challenging because, I mean, I've, I've done the total faith living and uh, you know went out to Burundi with nothing and got yeah. lots of crazy stories of God's provision and now I've got a salary and <laughs> and and it's it's just different because I don't have those stories because I don't need them and yeah. Uh, yeah I mean we but I still want to be in that position of total surrender and not settling for a, a domesticated Jesus which I think so many of us have and yeah. uh, we got to resist at all costs I mean I was out yesterday on the streets in our community and uh, one of our five of us went out and one one lady victoria fantastic i think it's the first person she's ever led to the lord and it's so wow. beautiful but we are called to get out there in the community aren't we and, and uh, i think that's so alien to most people's experiential reality of what their faith looks like in the west so, yeah so i th you you're, you're just challenging me in this, um, and I'm sure you've challenged a lot of people. Anyway, Phil, last words from you. Well, I, th I think we, we talked a little bit about COVID lockdown, which was obviously a big thing for a lot, of, a lot of people listening to this. My reflection would be, 
that the great lockdown was not the 18 months that we spent in COVID lockdown. Mm -hmm. I think it was almost like during those 18 months, God opened my eyes to the fact that Satan has locked down the church for decades. <sighs> we're stuck in our buildings. We're yeah. quarantined from the lost. Yeah. Then <laughs> we used to talk about the R number, how many people uh, you can infect when you're when you have the virus. I think the R number for Christians infecting the world with the gospel is incredibly small because we've been quarantined far better than Boris Johnson ever quarantined us with COVID. Mm. And I feel like at the end of lockdown, God enabled me to not just come out of COVID lockdown, but to come out of church lockdown. And I'm really passionate about helping church pastors and helping ordinary Christians to step out of church lockdown and to rediscover what it means to be part of Jesus's disciple-making movement in the UK. Wow. Listen, um, I hope, Phil, you don't get too bombarded by people, <laughs> but you can contact him at philmorebooks.com. Uh, There's a contact me option there. And uh, you can check yeah. out all that Phil's engaged in. And I mean, this is very thought-provoking, deeply challenging, inspiring, shaking. And, and I, I'm really grateful for your time, Phil. Bless you, mate. Oh, it's a pleasure. You've inspired me with your podcast. So it's nice to be able to be part of it myself. Oh, Thank you. Wonderful. Right, folks. Uh, some of us, that's going to be uh, literally uh, life-defining, I've no doubt. I, I, I hope it's like a an irritant uh, in your thinking as you go and process that. Go on, talk about it with someone you're close to, your, your spouse or your family, uh, colleagues, and uh, let's, let's cheer it over and not settle for what has just always been. Um, right, I'm off to do that now. Uh, listen, if you've, if you've enjoyed it, or if you haven't enjoyed it, but, but you've, you know you've been blasted by some serious truth, uh, I'd love it if you gave us a great review, if you passed it on to people you know need to hear that. Uh, you can be in touch with me at simongilbo.com or any social media platforms. I want to thank Adam Thomas Steer for the editing and Mike Sandman for the mixing. Next week, we've got a very different guest. Again, everyone's so different, isn't it? Beautiful how God works in all sorts of, well, every every sphere every career every different life so it'll be another inspiring session so i'll see you next time but in the meantime have a good week and toodaloo